before we begin, a disclaimer, this podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon as the basis for any investment decision. Nothing you hear is an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any security. The securities discussed on this podcast may be owned by persons being interviewed. Before making any investment decision, please consult an investment advisor. Um, do you want to kick things off? Yeah. Today we're talking about Chewy and, and Zoo Plus. So you know, both of these are e-com, e-com platforms that sell pet food and um, other consumables and accessories. Chewy operates in the US and Zoo Plus is a European player. Chewy is interesting because it actually just IPO'd this year um, in June. And the origination of it was that it, it was formed, it was launched in 2011. And then PetSmart acquired it for $3.4 billion in April of 2017. And then at the, at the, at the IPO price, they, they IPO'd it at $9 billion. And it's currently at $13 billion valuation. So pretty phenomenal um, return on their part. But anyway, they operate in the $70 billion pet industry. And about 65% of that is consumables, with the remaining being you know, vet care, pet supplies, and then also just buying animals. And so of the $70 billion industry, $6 billion of that is online and Chewy, in the, or at least in the U.S., and then Chewy has about a third market share of that. Cool. And with Zoo Plus, a lot of the same shit. There's a channel shift with online taking share from offline. Um, 10 to 12% of pet supply sales in Europe is online. Zoo Plus accounts for around half of that. So... Both companies are dominant players in their respective geographies within the online pet supplies niche. You mentioned that a substantial part of Chewy's revenue comes from consumables like dog food and cat litter. Uh, same for Zoo Plus. And it might be good to touch on why that's important. So you want to build a stream of recurring revenue and recurring revenue is driven by pet food and pet food carries low merchandise margins. So you need to achieve cost efficiency um, there's other stuff that matters like technology and customer service, but you need, um, you need to get a cost advantage to, to, um, profitably fund that stuff. And that's a function of, and, and that cost advantage is a function of, uh, scale economies. So you need to build a critical mass of volume on your logistics and marketing. And to do that, you start local and then you scale out over time. And so that's sort of what Zooplus has done. They've built local scale economies starting in Germany and they've gradually spread out into adjacent countries. Um, they didn't just spray all of Europe from the get-go. Um, you know, so, you know, there's no pricing power to this business. So how do you get your margins up? You need customers to build bigger basket sizes. You need to cross sell products and, um, you know, hopefully in doing so your logis your, uh, logistics costs goes down as a percentage of your order value. Yeah, no, definitely. I think that's, it's key to understanding just kind of like the, uh, the business case for these companies and, and how they operate. The other thing on, on recurring revenue, just to, to add on to that, you know, Chewy has done a really good job at, about building these um, repeat orders. 67% of their sales are on auto order, which is pretty phenomenal if you think about it. I mean, you know, that's just a, a very stable recurring revenue stream that they get from, from those existing customers. Yeah, it seems in general, Chewy has managed to build sort of a um, uh, a tighter customer relationship than Zoo Plus has. I think Chewy has, like they, they were saying they have an 86 NPS. And one of the things that they seem to have done 
very well is establish some, an emotional bond with their customers, whereas Zooplus seems like seems relatively more clinical about things. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think Chewy is, at least from a brand perspective, they've, pro- they've probably invested more into their brand um, and done a better job of positioning themselves as a partner in kind of serving, you know, the, their pet's life. And so, whereas I think, uh, you know, to your point, I think clinical is like kind of a, a good way to describe Zooplus where it's very kind of, I think it's more math oriented and most of the advertising budget has gone to, um, you know, customer acquisition instead of, you know, some of the soft brand building. Yeah. And so in that sense, it seems that Zooplus is maybe a closer analogy to, to Amazon. And so um, if I kind of comp this against um, Amazon, Zooplus is about four times bigger in Europe. Um, they're apparently growing much faster, 20% versus maybe low teens for Amazon, at least according to management. So compared to Amazon's 1P business, they sell a lot more, you know, obviously pet-specific goods, a wider variety of premium brands. Um, but then, you know, once you include Amazon's three third-party business, the product overlap is pretty substantial. I mean, more like 80% versus 20% overlap with Amazon's direct business. You know, I guess the idea there is um, the reason that so much of the pet supply space is offered through the marketplace rather than um, direct is that Amazon maybe doesn't see pet supplies as a core category. Maybe it's uh, the logistics challenges. Maybe the market's too small. Um, I I don't really know. You might think Zooplus does a really good job of laying out a lot of these issues. Um, So, you know, it's interesting. They say that on the 1P, which is, you know, they've got 20% overlap. They say that they're they're price competitive with Amazon. And that if you add in some of the um, loyalty discounts that you can get, you actually, um, they're at a discount. And then they said relative to the 3P, even though there's much higher product overlap, 80 or 90%, they're at a pricing advantage or at least at a cost advantage because the 3P has to pay, you know, the Amazon fees. Now, I guess um, I would take that with a grain of salt though, because the 3P providers basically get, you know, those fees that they're paying to Amazon are essentially customer acquisition cost fees. Um, And so they don't have to pay for that. Whereas, you know, Zooplus obviously does. And so it's hard to say how the economics shake out from one versus the other. Yeah, I think that's a, a critical point that you brought up is um, is just the customer acquisition advantage that Amazon may have here. And it makes me think that about how in college I had a dog and every few weeks I would go out and get this huge bag of dog food. But you know, I didn't make a separate trip to PetSmart. I just bundled that into my shopping at Safeway when I got groceries. And you know, my intuition would be that for the most part, this is how people think about shopping for pet food, they lump it in with their other grocery shopping. And that's why, you know, nearly half of pet supply sales come from the mass food and drug channel and not from specialty pet stores. And now, you know, maybe when you move things online, it's different. It's easier to go to amazon.com and then open another browser and go to Zooplus than it is to drive to Safeway and then make a separate drive to, to PetSmart. But yeah, I mean, so I'm, the question for me has always been for for pet food and cat litter, do consumers sort of see those as a category that is distinct from human groceries. And it's not clear to me that they do. And to the extent that they don't, then as groceries themselves shift online and Amazon gets bigger there, well, then do pet consumables just come along for that ride? 
Yeah, I, I don't know. It's hard. It's hard to answer. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about my own experience here. So, you know, we, we, we've chosen a specific type of pet food for our, for our dog and these online players, it's actually not available on Chewy or Amazon. And so there's just a local independent that we go to here to buy it. Um, and so we, we've done it, I guess we just go to them as like almost a repeat, repeat purchase. Cause we know that they have it. We want to keep it consistent. And so I do feel like maybe there's like a stickiness to this where it's like, if you're doing something that works, maybe just keep on doing it. Um, and, and that's why, you know, that's why the auto orders is so high on Chewy. It's at, you know, like I said, two thirds or 67% of their sales. And so, um, I do think that there's probably like a stickiness here, um, to just, you know, don't, don't change it if it's, if it, if it's not broken. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess to the extent that things become easier and people start buying their groceries online, you know, buying it through Amazon, maybe that's just, uh, you know, going to, you can just lump it in with the purchase there, you know? The, the issue does become especially pertinent, uh, because as you were talking about earlier, Zoo Plus is really reliant on Google for customer acquisition. I think like 80% of their marketing spend is on Google and, you know, Google is losing share to Amazon in the realm of product search, at least in the US, but I, I imagine that's probably true in Europe as well. And so if people don't think about pet food as a special category, if, um, you know, Zoo Plus isn't a destination site, um, so to speak, then, you know, they may just start their search on Amazon. And so I think, you know, where, where Zoo Plus is at an advantage, as you were saying, is, you know, the main reason why someone starts their search on Amazon is because of product selection, um, free shipping, price. And on all three of those dimensions, um, Zoo Plus is superior within the pet category. And so the dilemma I think that Zoo Plus is in is that they relied so heavily on Google for customer acquisition over the years at the expense of brand marketing that <clears throat> you know a, a pet parent may not think to start their shopping on Zoo Plus. She might think, well, you know, I have Amazon Prime, I'll start there. And you know, this is kind of yet another reason why you know, customers see their pet supply purchases in the context of, uh, you know, how they see their pet purchases in the context of other purchases so critical. So, you know, is Zoo Plus really a low cost provider relative to Amazon? It's not really clear what that means because, you know, um, it's not like Amazon is looking to maximize margins in the pet food category. Like Amazon likes categories with habitual purchase activity. And so they can loss lead in some products for the sake of building recurring basket, uh, the, the big recurring basket, you know. But, um, you know, it can be hard to know where the boundaries of bundling stop being sensible and start becoming ludicrous. Um, I don't know. It's become very popular these days to say, well, you know, focus is incredibly important. And, you know, the people coming to work at Amazon aren't coming to work uh, every day passionate about trying to figure out how to really nail this category. And yeah, okay, I guess. I mean, it's it always sounds like an argument that works better in retrospect i think um sometimes it's true but then sometimes you get quidzy i'm sure you could have told yourself a story that yeah you know they're selling diapers but bootstrapping themselves to be a one-stop destination for all things maternity i mean i doubt amazon was concerned about the category profitability of diapers per se of bigger importance was just building a bigger recurring bundle and it's also, I mean, I think the hardest, the hardest thing for these guys is cross-selling because, because so much of the basket, you know, like you said, 80 to 90% is consumables. Um, 
you know, people just view that very transactional in nature. There's not like a browsing aspect to it. And because Amazon offers so many other products, you know, you can go on there and do, um, you know, uh, you could buy electronics, you can buy your groceries, whatever it is. There's, you know, people go for Prime Day, all that stuff. You can watch, you know, movies because there's so many different ways that they get value out, out of Amazon. I think that long term, they would have a much easier ability to expand the basket and lump pet food in with that. Um, and so, I don't know, I do, I do think that's like kind of an, ex, it's got to be an existential risk to, to both these guys. Yeah, it does seem like if they really want to differentiate from Amazon long term, they so they basically need to be like the trusted go-to channel for everything related to pets. And um, so they have, I think this is Zooplus, like 7 million active customers. That's Zooplus, right? I don't know. <laughs> um, uh, nearly all of them like stick around from year to year so they can build off that base to offer, you know, whatever it is, matchmaking to vets or dog sitters or whatever. But basically they need to be like this destination app for pet parents, I think. And, and to that point, I mean, Chewy, Chewy recently launched their own pharmacy. Yeah. And so I think I, it, it does seem to me that like Chewy has done maybe a better job at this than, um, than Zoo Plus has, I guess, at least when we, when we kind of look at the, um, at the unit economics, right? And maybe we can segue into that. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think just to round up, round off the um, the point on customer acquisition, you were talking before about Google. Um, you know, I think it's important to note that Zooplus says that uh, last year their average cost of uh, acquiring a customer is twenty eight euro, and that the incremental cost for for a Google customer or a customer from Google, yeah, is forty to fifty euro, and so. For whatever reason, they've kind of tapped out that market, and it also could just be Google's price optimizing, and so they need to find a new way to pull in growth. And you know, the LTV of the customers, you know, there's a lot of different ways things that you can do about that. You can try to you know reduce churn, improve the basket, both the aggregate size of the basket, but then also you know optimize um, the basket size to to help. Um, improve contribution margin. But I guess as far as the denominator of that of the LTV to CAC ratio goes, it seems like there's going to be a lot of pressure on that side of the business. And when you're talking about companies that are, you know, break even to negative EBITDA um, businesses, you know, there's a lot being priced in for being able to get to scale and, and grow quickly. Um, and if they're not able to do that, I just wonder kind of what happens. And I guess, so, so maybe just to, to segue into unit economics, I mean, um, so I know that, so, so I know that Chewy talks about, or they, they lay out LTV to CAC um, for different cohorts and they show it over time. And so um, in general, you know, the first year of customer acquisition, the LTV to CAC is, is 0.5. So they're basically losing money in the first year. Um, so they also say that, you know, customers spend around $200 on their first year. So if you assume a 20% contribution margin, uh, that's $40 of, of contribution profit per customer. So you can kind of assume that their cost, cost of acquiring a customer is, is 80 bucks. Um, and then based on the disclosures that they provide, it looks like that cohort gives another $40 the next year, and then 50, 60, and then another 60. So 
you're actually seeing spend per user go up over time. And I think that's more than just a factor of, um, you know, the sticky customers are sticking around and spending more and the less, you know, valued customers are dropping off. I think what you're also seeing is just macro trends of, you know, wallet shift to online. And so part of, you know, something that I'm a little bit not sure about is, are these long-term LTV to CAC ratios of like three and a half times, um, is that being inflated by this e-com shift? And so once the e-com shift kind of happens, are you not going to see people increase their wallet share from, let's say, 40 to 60 bucks? Yeah, it does get back to this point of how important it is to um, how important cross-selling is and bundling in these other services. And that's why, um, as you were pointing out earlier, the the pet healthcare could be a promising avenue in that in that regard because it's um, there's a high recurring component with um, with meds. Uh, Chewy's business two thirds of revenues on auto ship, and so prescriptions can get kind of carried along in that in that basket. Um, and so management is saying that like households spend between 400, 700 bucks for pet healthcare, and that 90% of that is addressable by Chewy. Um, and so, um, and their current customer spend is like 340 bucks, I think. And so, you know, that could possibly be, um, uh, you know, a, a pretty substantial source of high margin revenue for them. But, um, but yeah, I hear you, you know, zoo plus has this slide and I've heard other people quote this before about how, uh, about how Zooplus's market valuation is half 0.5 times sales, whereas Chewy's is more closer to three. And, um, you know, some of the commentary I've seen says, well, you know, Chewy loses, Chewy generates negative um, 7% EBITDA margins while Zooplus is essentially break even. But then like, you know, you have to consider that Chewy is growing much faster and adding customers at what seem like better unit economics. And so, Chewy, as you were saying before, their revenue retention rate is like 120%. And for Zoo Plus, it's more like 95%. So, you know, even at 95% revenue retentions, that means that Zoo Plus's cohort wedge is like shrinking every year. Whereas for Chewy, it's the opposite, right? It's it's getting fatter every year. Zoo Plus's CAC has been trending higher uh, for all the reasons that we talked about. Uh, the marginal CAC is more like 40 to 50. And so, you know, they're making, let's say, a little over two times their CAC after five years, um, which is not awesome. And I think uh, and I think Chewy's doing a little bit better than that. Do you, I, there's also, um, I guess, Chewy also has a uh, relationship with PetSmart still, right? I, I don't know if PetSmart's still an investor in them. Yeah, so PetSmart, I think PetSmart still owns something like 70% of the shares. <laughs> yeah, and they also, they also sell some of their private label through PetSmart, which actually is, is a good segue into just the private label business and also the brand relationship business. So, you know, for both Chewy and Zoo Plus, protecting the brand is very important and having these brand partnerships is very important because, you know, obviously you want to have, I guess, a breadth of content. And if those brands are afraid that other distribution venues are going to dilute the brand, they're not going to sell there. But at the same time, both Chewy and Zoo Plus are investing in their private label business. And so, I believe Zoo Plus has done a better job. I think they're at like 15% and Chewy's around five. I don't have any data on this, but like I know, I know for myself, um, you know, with, with the food that I eat and the food also that we feed our pet, um, you know, we read all the ingredients and we make sure, you know, just, just, yeah, to see how healthy it is. So like, 
you know, before I eat anything, I'll read the ingredients and same thing with the dog food, you know, I'll make sure that it has the, you know, the stuff in it that we want. And so I guess I'm less, I'm more brand agnostic and more just focused on the ingredient mix. Um, now, now other people could end up just trusting a brand, just like someone might say, oh, everything Kashi is good. So I'm going to buy Kashi only. But yeah, I mean, you saw, you saw like, um, blue, what was that blue, uh, blue, is it blue mountain? Blue, blue Buffalo. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Blue Buffalo. Yeah. was a publicly traded, um, higher end pet food company that I think they got, they got bought out at a pretty high multiple. I think they had done pretty well from like a top line growth perspective. So I think there is, I think there's gotta be some, some brand value to, um, on the consumable side. It could be why, why both the retailers are trying to get into that. Yeah, that's a good point. The final thing I wanted to touch on was in his last investor letter, Einhorn compared Chewy to pets.com. Um, you know, I get, he was trying to be provocative, so maybe we're not supposed to take his comments too literally, but you know, there's, you know, there's, um, reasoning from first principles and then there's reasoning from analogy. And this was definitely reasoning by analogy. Um, I touched on why the pets.com comparison was flawed in my zoo plus post from a few years ago. Um, you know, the background conditions were very different. 20 years ago, there was greater dependence on expensive brand media. Only, you know, a third of households had internet access at the time. Consumers weren't used to transacting online. You had a shitload of other pet e-tailers, none of whom had gotten to scale. And, you know, in that context, pets.com was spending, um, like 400 bucks a customer. Um, and Americans were spending, I don't know, like a hundred bucks a year on their pets. So the letter also made me think about a conversation that we just, we, we once had about investing off of KPIs. And my point at that time was that it's easy to just say, well, I'm long this stock because, you know, net revenue retention was this, customer growth was that, LTV to CAC was, you know, so-and-so and so forth. But, you know, that's not really a basis to be long a stock because, you know, you have to have, you have to get to a an explanation about why those numbers are what they are and why they will remain strong. Well, the same thing works in reverse. I mean, if you're short a stock like this, you have to explain why things have gone so well so far and why those reasons will no longer hold in the future. Otherwise, you're just doing the inverse of the guy who Momo invests on strong KPIs. Yeah, no, I think it's a great it's a great point. And um, it's interesting, you and I, we, we've talked about, so now we've talked about um, like online pet food. Um, we talked about Gaia before, which is, and like, like these are all, like, I guess when you're looking at these um, online businesses, a lot of it, or at least subscription type businesses, um, you know, I know we've talked um, at least offline about SaaS a lot. A lot of it comes down to, you know, LTV to CAC. And so it's really easy to just kind of focus on, um, you know, the numbers that management gives you. But uh, I guess it's important to understand the qualitative aspect of things. But I think maybe the biggest differentiator is just the logistical aspect of it, whether it's just whether the Amazon DCs are not set up to ship, you know, 20 pound pa pound uh, bags of food. Right, right. Yeah. Um, cool. I think, I think that was good. All right. So we'll have to do like a, a mix mash of like all the different. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll play a uh, Sir Mix-a-Lot here. <laughs> I think this was a good discussion though. I mean, 
Um, yeah. This is more. Right, I'm going to stop this recording now. Yeah. Is that cool?